Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 170, The Whiskey Tax. Last time out, we looked at the tensions that were being felt in the western settlements of the United States around 1790. The frontiersmen were living hard lives with death all around. They were isolated from trade networks and the major settlements of the coast, such as Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Charlestown. This was both a physical isolation, it was difficult to get across the Appalachians, and mental, in that the settlements of the West did not feel they were adequately represented by their governments. They were short on currency and had started turning to making whiskey to use as currency. And when Pennsylvania tried to create an excise tax on whiskey, the three western counties caused such a commotion that the state gave in. However, this was just a prelude of what was to come. On May 5th, 1790, a bill came before Congress proposing a duty on spirits distilled within the United States. This naturally grew out of Hamilton's financial plan. If the federal government was going to assume the debts of states, it would need to raise revenues to pay them off, or at least manage the debt. The motion was handily defeated three times before Hamilton made a second move in December 1790. Hamilton reported there was going to be a revenue shortfall of $826,624.73. and if they were going to manage the debt. This spirit tax was expected to raise $975,000, including $270,000 raised by the excise tax. Hamilton tried to forestall potential opposition by pointing out how this system could not be used as a tool of oppression, such as limiting the searching powers of collectors and giving the accused the right to trial by jury. He also argued that this was better than other solutions, such as a land tax, as the nation would benefit from leaving a land tax untapped, and to give them options if they needed to raise a revenue in future. He also wanted a financial safety net. Having all income be through foreign trade would lead to disaster if something affected Americans' foreign trade. For example, hypothetically, a series of wars brought about by a revolution in France. We discussed back in episode 168 that Hamilton wanted to grow American domestic trade, so it would make sense that Hamilton would want to set an early precedent for taxing it. The proposals provoked a broad range of opposition. The legislatures of Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina and Georgia all opposed the tax, although, interestingly, John Servia, a North Carolinan congressman, made the interesting point that while he was opposed to the tax, he thought that it would be impossible to enforce the collection of taxes in the western counties, so the citizens there could completely ignore the laws, and this would encourage migration to the area, as prices for whiskey would be lower than elsewhere. Some centred their opposition on the injustice of excises, and others on how harshly the proposed law would affect the frontier, where this was the only luxury around. There were suggestions for alternative taxes, 
such as a duty on the import of molasses or even a land tax. But the measure wasn't without support. Merchants who didn't want to see another duty on foreign trade supported it, as did the public creditors who wanted reliable financial revenue. Social reformers also supported it, hoping it would reduce alcoholism. In the end, Hamilton's arguments won the day, and the excise whiskey tax was passed in March 1791. While this debate was raging, another important event which would shape where resistance to the excise would be most focused was taking place. That important event was the expansion of the Union. In the North, there had long been a land dispute between New Hampshire and New York around the land west of the Connecticut River. Both states claimed the land, but New Hampshire settled it, and the area became known as the New Hampshire Grants. In 1777, the area declined independence, first as the Republic of New Connecticut, before renaming themselves Vermont. Vermont existed as an independent state, but could not join the Union until it resolved its land dispute with New York, which still claimed the territory. In 1790, Vermont and New York finally came to an agreement, and Vermont voted to join the Union in January 1791. Congress agreed in February, and in March 1791, Vermont became the 14th state. This resolved potential issues in the North, and then there was the South. After much disagreement in the western areas of Virginia about their representation, the Union finally offered independent statehood in 1791, and the area accepted, breaking away from Virginia to become the 15th state in 1792, Kentucky. This helped solve some of the issues for these frontiersmen, but there was no such relief for western Pennsylvania. Instead, they focused on efforts to stop the tax. This began on July 27th, 1791, with a meeting at Redstone Old Fort in southwestern Pennsylvania, the modern Brownsville. This would later be characterised by Alexander Hamilton as a meeting of demagogues causing trouble, but it was nothing of the kind. These weren't even crazed anti-federalists, although there certainly were anti-federalists among them. Primarily, this was a group of moderates. They chose a respectable local leader, Edward Cook, to preside over the meeting. They asserted the right of Congress to levy the excise tax. They merely sought to persuade Congress to repeal it. They saw themselves as the same American Whigs who had protested the Stamp Act or the Tea Act. They took great effort to make the process respectable and republican canvassing for local opinion and proposing that the respectable members of society, read landowning white men, elect officials to collect the opinions of the citizens in the districts. They would form a committee which would then create a statement of their views, which would be sent to Pittsburgh. This would, quote, express the settlements of the people of those counties, Washington, Bayette, Allegheny, and Westmoreland, in an address to Congress in relation to the excise law and other grievances, end quote. This was certainly in the American tradition, but if it was, 
some could see the rebellious streak in it, and worried that the force would oppose the government. The use of the words other grievances would later be used as justification for insurrectionist intent. The delegates went to the Pittsburgh Assembly on September 7th, 1791, where they did present their concerns on the excise tax to the Assembly, along with their other grievances, which were in essence opposition to Hamilton's financial plan. They opposed the salaries of officials, federal assumption of state debts, payment to current rather than original holders of the debt, and a permanent national debt. When we bear in mind how Hamilton was inspired by Britain and was actively trying to create the British financial system, it's interesting that these men of Western Pennsylvania criticised the excise for setting a bad precedent by, quote, tending to introduce the excise laws of Great Britain and of countries where the liberty, property, and even the morals of people are sported with, end quote. They were making every effort to protest in a legal manner within the framework of established American politics, even if it was outside the framework of government. But they were not the only ones upset by the law, and some were willing to take more direct action. On September the 11th, four days after the delegates spoke at Pittsburgh, a group of 16 men attacked an excise officer in Washington County. They cut his hair, stole his horse, tied and feathered him before leaving him in the woods, all while they were dressed in women's clothing. But the officer recognised some of the aggressors, and arrest warrants were made. But the marshal wouldn't arrest them himself, fearing for his own safety. Instead, he hired someone who did not understand what he had signed up for to do the job. The unfortunate soul was whipped, tarred, feathered, robbed, and left tied to a tree for over five hours. There were clearly different strands of protest at work, but this wasn't picked up by federal officials, who instead saw a single coordinated campaign with respectable civic leaders causing trouble, an impression that was encouraged by informers such as John Neville, who told officials in the West that these were aspiring politicians causing trouble because they wanted a place in Congress. This, when combined with an inability and unwillingness to understand the nature of the complaints, trouble was bound to happen. Neville, who himself was a former general during the Revolutionary War, was an excise officer, and was recommending as early as 1791 that he would need armed force if he was going to collect the excise. No further attempt was made to collect the taxes in western Pennsylvania until the summer of 1792, nearly 18 months after the excise tax was passed into law. Neville, who had been warned against it by friends, managed to rent a space in Washington County, only for a group to immediately attack the office. Meanwhile, another attempt was made at a petition. The group was chaired by John Cannon, who was one of George Washington's land agents. This should give you a good idea of the social strata we're dealing with here. This resolution was stronger than the first, stating they were, quote, convinced that a tax upon liquors, which are the common drink of a nation, operates in proportion to the number and not to the wealth of the people, and of course is unjust in itself and oppressive upon the poor, 
They also said of those who cooperated with the tax collectors, quote, We will consider such persons as unworthy of our friendship, have no intercourse of dealings with them, withdraw from them every assistance, and withhold all the comforts of life which depend upon those duties, that as men and fellow citizens we owe each other, and upon all occasions treat them with the contempt they deserve. End quote. Although we are 88 years away from the term being coined, this was certainly a boycott. The delegates also continued to draw inspiration from the protests against the Stamp Act and the Tea Act by creating correspondence committees. This was instinctual behaviour to the Americans who had waged the revolution, but would have been a factor in the increased anxiety officials felt about them, worrying that an independence movement was brewing. And this was not localised. There was unrest, petitions and violence in the frontier of every state south of New York. In Kentucky, the law was completely unenforceable. Nothing was collected. Thomas Marshall, surveyor of Kentucky and father of John Marshall, who we'll have much more to deal with later, was sure that plenty of whiskey was being produced and smuggled, but the state could find no one willing to prosecute. This was common across the south, at least in the areas inland from the coast. Interestingly, historian Mary K. Chow has argued that the Treasury was able to selectively publish and withhold information to hide from the East the ability of the Westerners to avoid the excise. Hamilton wanted immediate military intervention in North Carolina to force collection of the excise, but was resisted by others in government. Washington wanted to leave the matter for the governors for the moment. The Chief Justice, John Jay, argued that the risk of defeat meant military intervention could only be a last resort. The Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, was critical of Hamilton's evidence and didn't think it met the standard either for prosecution or military action. By September 1792, Hamilton had rethought his strategy. Rather than focus on North Carolina, his focus turned to Western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania was not unique in refusing to pay the excise, but Hamilton had his reasons. Hamilton thought only one centre of resistance would need to be crushed for the rest to fall into line. It would be tactically easier for the federal government to fight in Pennsylvania rather than the southwestern frontier, and violence in western Pennsylvania posed more of a threat. Remember that the capital was Philadelphia. Washington was also more willing to take action against Pennsylvania. He wrote, quote, such conduct in any of the citizens of the United States under any circumstances that could well be conceived would be exceedingly reprehensible, but when it comes from a part of the community for whose protection the money arising from the tax was principally designed, it is truly unaccountable, and the spirit of it much to be regretted. End quote. While the frontiersmen thought living under threat of Indian attack should excuse them from taxes, Washington believed that the effort spent on their defence meant they should be the ones complaining the least. When Hamilton tried to get Randolph to indict those who attended the Pittsburgh meeting in 1791, he had Washington's backing, 
Washington told Hamilton, quote, I have no hesitation in declaring, the evidence is clear and unequivocal, that I shall, however reluctantly I exercise them, exert all legal power with which the executive is invested to check so daring and unwarrantable a spirit forbearance under a hope that the inhabitants of that survey would recover from the delirium and folly into which they were plunged, seems to have no other effect than to increase the disorder. End quote. While Randolph was able to prosecute the attack on a collector, the Pittsburgh meeting proved difficult. Hamilton and Washington believed these meetings were causing the violence, though, as we've seen, this wasn't the case. Randolph urged Hamilton to be conciliatory in his approach and to base his case on the law. But Hamilton was Hamilton, and when he had his mind set on something, he rarely changed course. Hamilton wrote a proclamation, signed by Washington, on September the 15th, 1792, forwarded on to Jefferson, which was published throughout the nation. It read, quote, By the President of the United States, a proclamation. Whereas certain violent and unwarrantable proceedings have lately taken place, tending to obstruct the operation of the laws of the United States, but raising a revenue upon spirits distilled within the same, enacted pursuant to express authority delegated in the Constitution of the United States, which proceedings are subversive of good order, contrary to the duty that every citizen owes to his country and to the laws, and of a nature dangerous to the very being of government. And whereas such proceedings are the more unwarrantable, by reason of the moderation which has been hitherto shewn on the part of the government, and of the disposition which has been manifested by the legislature, who alone have authority to suspend the operation of laws, to obviate causes of objection and to render the laws as acceptable as possible, and whereas it is the particular duty of the executive to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and not only that duty, but the permanent interests and happiness of the people require that every legal and necessary step should be pursued, as well to prevent such violent and unwarrantable proceedings, as to bring to justice the infractors of the laws, and secure obedience thereto. Now therefore I, George Washington, President of the United States, do by these present most earnestly admonish and exhort all persons whom it may concern to refrain and desist from all unlawful combinations and proceedings whatsoever, having for object or tending to obstruct the operation of the laws aforesaid, inasmuch as all lawful ways and means will be strictly put into execution for bringing to justice the infractors thereof and securing obedience thereto. And I do, moreover, charge and require all courts, magistrates, and officers whom it may concern, according to the duties of their several officers, to exert the powers in them respectively vested by law for the purposes aforesaid hereby also enjoining and requiring all persons whomsoever, as they tender the welfare of their country, the just and due authority of government, and the preservation of the public peace, 
to be aiding and assisting therein according to law. In testimony, whereof I have caused the seal of the United States to be affixed to these presents and signed the same with my hand. Done this 15th day of September in the year of our Lord 1792 and of the independence of the United States, the 17th. George Washington by the President Thomas Jefferson. End quote. We cannot say that Hamilton single-handedly caused the Whiskey Rebellion. As we've seen over the past two episodes, there have been a lot of participants in the affair. But, as I hope is obvious, this was clearly the wrong tone to take. It would be an interesting counterfactual to see what would have happened had Hamilton sagely listened to Randolph, but that is not for us to discuss here. What matters is there were people on both sides of the conflict, Hamilton chiefly among them, who relished the possibility of armed conflict over the excise tax. And that is where we shall leave things for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.